Hello, everyone. It's Eves checking in here to let you know that you're going to be hearing two different events in history in this episode, one from me and one from Tracy V. Wilson. They're both good, if I do say so myself. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 6th. Richard I, also known as Richard the Lionheart, inherited the throne on this day in 1189 after the death of his father, King Henry II. In his younger years, uh, Richard had not really expected to be the king. He was born on September 8, 1157. His mother was Eleanor of Aquitaine, and he was one of eight children, including four sons who survived infancy. In addition to Richard, the boys were Henry, Geoffrey, and John, and Henry was ahead of Richard in the line to, for the throne. So Richard sort of assumed his brother was going to be king. These brothers, though, they had so much squabbling amongst themselves The kingdoms had various holdings in England and France, and King Henry divided them up among his sons. He sort of had this idea that his sons should each have something they were in charge of. He divided everything up that way, but he didn't really let his sons run the territory they were theoretically controlling. He also didn't really communicate with them all that well about anything that he was doing. So there was a lot of infighting among the brothers over turf. None of them really trusted their father at all. And then Richard's older brother, Henry, who was sometimes called Henry the Younger King, rebelled against his father in 1173. And when he did that, Richard and Geoffrey joined him. So at this point, they were actually all on the same side instead of fighting with each other. Their rebellion, though, was not successful. Eventually, they had to back down and ask for their father's pardon. Henry the Young King tried again, but he failed and he died in 1183. This put Richard next in line for the throne. But his father, though, was still trying to figure out who should be in charge of what in their kingdom. He wanted the youngest, John, to have something of his own. John's lack of a kingdom had earned him the nickname Lackland. So... King Henry wanted John to have Aquitaine, but Richard did not like that idea at all. He really didn't trust that if he let John have Aquitaine, he would actually get what had previously belonged to his brother Henry. Plus, Richard was a lot more connected to the French territory than to the English territory. So... Richard joined forces with Philip II of France and pestered his father until his father died an early death. By that point, King Henry had formally recognized that Richard would follow him on the throne. So after his father died on July 6th and Richard inherited the throne, he was formally crowned on September 3rd of 1189. There was actually a wave of anti-Semitic violence in England after this coronation, including a massacre and the destruction of a predominantly Jewish neighborhood by a Christian mob. There were rumors that Richard himself had ordered this, but when he heard about it, he was outraged. Once he was king, though, Richard the Lionheart's rule was less about ruling, more about crusading. He wanted to join the Third Crusade. He made the money to do it by selling public offices, including sheriffdoms. So if this sounds kind of familiar, and you're not already familiar with 12th century military and political history, a lot of this is in retellings of the story of Robin Hood. There's obviously a whole lot more about Richard the Lionheart's life and reign, but almost none of it was spent in England. He was king for a decade, and he spent less than six months of it in England. 
In spite of this, he was very popular. He was known not only for his battlefield skill and his political cunning, but also for writing songs and poems. And of course, there's his famed courage, which is why he earned the name Lionheart. He died on April 6th of 1199 from an infected wound from a crossbow bolt. This bolt was not poisoned. Researchers figured that out when studying the remains of his heart in research that was published in 2013. His younger brother, John the one who Richard had refused to give rule over Aquitaine, became king. Thanks so much to Eves Jeffcoat for her research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison for her audio skills on all these episodes. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a posthumous pardon. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. Today is July 6th, 2019. The day was July 6th, 1988. The Piper Alpha oil rig 110 miles northeast of Aberdeen, Scotland, exploded. 167 people died in the disaster. A consortium including Occidental Petroleum, Texaco Britain, International Thompson, and Texas Petroleum owned Piper Alpha, and it was operated by Occidental. The Piper Alpha platform was located in 474 feet, or 144 meters, of water in the North Sea. Oil and gas pipelines connected the platform to two other production platforms called Claymore A and Tartan A, and a manifold compression platform known as MCP-1. Piper Alpha produced hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil every day, more than any other in the world at the time. The Piper Alpha platform separated the fluid produced by the wells into oil, gas, and condensate. The oil was pumped through a pipeline to the Flotta oil terminal in Orkney. The condensate was injected back into the oil to be sent to shore, and the gas was sent through a pipeline to the manifold compression platform. The production deck level of the platform was made up of four modules. Module A was the wellhead, B was the oil separation module, C was the gas compression module, and D was the power generation and utilities module. There were firewalls between the modules, but they were not blast-resistant. The main production areas had a fire and gas detection system. On July 6, 1988, one condensate injection pump, Pump A, was out of operation for maintenance. Pump B was in operation. Three jobs were supposed to be done on Pump A. Preventative maintenance, repair of the coupling, and recertification of a pressure safety valve. That day, the relief valve was removed for testing, and by the time the day shift was over, the job was not done. The relief valve was not replaced, but this was not communicated to the night shift personnel. After pump B went down at around 9.50 p.m., the lead production operator decided to start pump A. But about five minutes later, alarms started going off. Around 10 p.m., just as the operator put his hand out to cancel the alarms, there was an explosion in the gas compression module of the Piper Alpha platform, blowing the production operator across the room. 
gas condensate leaking from the pump ignited. Almost immediately after the explosion, a pool fire broke out in the oil separation module. A pool fire is a diffusion flame where a layer of volatile liquid fuel evaporates and burns. The oil pool fire created a plume of smoke that enveloped the platform at the production deck and above. The spreading fire got to over 700 degrees Celsius, or about 1300 degrees Fahrenheit. The offshore installation manager sent a mayday signal. Though there was a fire water system, the sprinkler heads did not work properly. Because the explosion had disabled the main communication system, the platforms attached to Piper Alpha continued producing and pumping oil for a while. Since there was so much smoke, the lifeboats were not accessible. So people tried to escape using other methods. Some climbed down knotted ropes to the sea. Others jumped into the sea from higher heights, including the helideck. Nearby vessels sent fast rescue crafts to the scene. Though about 59 people survived the disaster, 167 died. It was the deadliest offshore oil disaster ever. The platform was destroyed, and by the next morning, only the wellhead module remained. The fire burned for three weeks before oil well fireman Paul Neil Adair extinguished it. Scottish judge William Cullen led an inquiry into the causes of the disaster. The Cullen Report was released in November of 1990. It found that Occidental did not have proper safety and maintenance procedures, and that the condensate leak was caused by the maintenance work happening on a pump and safety valve. It also recommended new procedures for training workers, operating equipment, and designing platforms, as safety management, staff communications, and safety systems have proved inadequate in the disaster. The disaster exposed problems with offshore regulations and led to the 1992 Offshore Installations Safety Case Regulations in the UK. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you again tomorrow for more tidbits of history. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.